0: Welcome to Sundays with Saima and Co. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and professionals in the field. I'm your host today, Grace Shadid, second-year medical student at SUNY Downstate College of Medicine. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Eric Gendon. Dr. Gendon is the Isidore Freisner Professor and Chair of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, the Senior Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs, and Professor of Neurosurgery and Immunology at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He is Chair of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery, Executive Vice President of Ambulatory Surgery, and the Director of the Head and Neck Institute at the Mount Sinai Health System. Dr. Jendin is internationally recognized as a leader and innovator in the management of oropharyngeal cancers and microvascular reconstruction of the head and neck. He also oversees an NIH-funded basic science laboratory that studies the transplantation immune biology of the trachea and the larynx. In January 2021, Dr. Jenden led an interdisciplinary team of doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals to successfully complete the first ever human tracheal transplant. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Jenden about this incredible surgery and the lessons that we can take into the future. Dr. Jendon, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm excited to be speaking with you.
1: Happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. So, um, I'm really excited today to be speaking with you about this trachea transplant surgery that you and your team conducted. But before we get into the details of the surgery, I first wanted to talk to you a little bit about your research background, since transplant uh, tracheal transplantation is something that you've actually been working on for quite a long time. It seems like you've been doing research on this since you were in medical school. So could you just tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in researching trachea transplantation?
1: Sure, sure. So actually, I was a medical student, and as a medical student, we had two interesting cases that came into the hospital in a short period of time. One was a relatively young man. He was in his late 30s. And he had a benign tumor of the trachea, the windpipe, that was really very extensive. And we had opened him up. I was scrubbed in on the case as a student. And they opened up the the patient and they said, you know, we can't take this out because we have no way to reconstruct it. It was about seven centimeters in length of the, the airway. And so they closed it up and eventually he succumbed to the disease. And I was shocked that, that this totally curable disease was incurable because there was no way to reconstruct the patient. So about four weeks after that, I was on the pediatrics rotation. We had a young baby that was born with a uh, partial tracheal where the trachea had not formed completely. And the baby had succumbed as well, because there was no way to manage that. And I was, I was shocked that dating back to 1952, when, when Dr. Murray did the first kidney transplant, you know, there's been such incredible things that have occurred in medicine and science, and in particular in transplantation, but yet there was no way to, to, to transplant what appeared to be kind of just a tube. Um so I did what a lot of medical students do I find out who's the who is the world's expert and it was a it was a, a doctor who was up in Boston Dr. Hermes Grillo, and I contacted him and I said you know why can't we transplant this thing this would this would be the answer to so many problems and he said you know it can't be done the blood supply is not appropriate you need to find another way. That's where research is going, and finding gene therapy and and scaffolding and and you name it. But transplantation can't be done, and it's a very dangerous uh, lesson um, because it was dictum. It was dictum by somebody who held a position of great regard, um, who simply said, "This can't be done." And his comments and several others that were in his kind of top of their field shaped research in tracheal reconstruction for well over half a century. Every paper you read, thousands of them start out with, because transplantation of the trachea is not possible, we boop, 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 and move on. And so, you know, that's one of the nice things about being a medical student is you you tend to question these dictums, and you tend to say, I'm going to see if I can find a way to do it. So that's how this all got started. And that's why I started as a student um, and carried it through in spite of the fact that there was the scientific dogma that this couldn't be done.
0: Wow, that's pretty incredible to hear. Um, And you really did transition into my next question because it did seem that there was a ton of doubt about whether tracheal transplantation was even possible from a human donor or whether you would need to use other methods like maybe a synthetic trachea, 3D technology, um, or like you were saying, immune therapies or something else. So you did sort of provide us with some context, but I'm curious to know why you ultimately believed in donor transplantation because even from my perspective now as a medical student, I do tend to believe the experts and I do have the curiosities. And I think oftentimes that's the benefit of medical students being a part of the team is that we are curious. We don't know all the answers and asking those questions is powerful, but I'm just so curious why you still had faith in this process, even though the experts were saying it very strongly that it couldn't be done.
1: Well, you know, if you're interested in medical history, you'll find as you read back some of the greatest and most important advances in in science and medicine have been made by medical students, Um, whether it's robotic surgery, uh, which was introduced for the head and neck by a medical student, um, findings in oncology, the Delphian node associated with trachea, uh, with uh, laryngeal cancer, a medical student, the list goes on and on, you know. Um, When you're a student, as we all kind of know, you may hear something, but a lot of us will say, let me go take a look at this. Let me go see what is the date of the research that's been done. And when you look at this individual's research, you could see where he's coming from. But if you go back further and we looked at anatomic drawings from the 1800s by uh, 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 an anatomist and physician named Bougerie who was in France, a French anatomist, who did these beautiful drawings um, and renderings of of all different parts of the body. And if you look at the the drawings that he did, uh, based on these dissections that they did, there was this curious blood supply that ran through the muscular esophagus into the trachea. And all of the work that had been done leading up to this in the contemporary work, didn't really define it that well. They actually drew it out, but they never recognized that, you know, maybe you have to just take it as a composite. Maybe you have to, you know, not disrupt that 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 um, uh, arcade of blood vessels. So, you know, so why do you keep going? You keep going because... You know, you told no and you say, well, let me let me just investigate myself why that is, why that no is, is is a real no. And is it a real no? And, you know, in his world and his research and what he had done and others that kind of supported it, they, they got into this what we like to call kind of, you know, group speak where they all started to believe their own kind of ideas without really looking around at what else had been done. And there's some very interesting research that has been done by lesser known people that have done a beautiful job defining vascular supplies that raise the question, could we do this? Maybe we could do this. And so, you know, it wasn't out of defiance. It was just out of curiosity. And it was this idea that maybe there was more to the story. And in so many cases that there is more to the story. There really is.
0: Yeah, I really like that perspective. Um, Just diving a little bit further into the idea of revascularizing the trachea, As you've mentioned, and others before had mentioned, that is a huge challenge to overcome with this surgery. Why is it more challenging to revascularize the trachea than any other organ?
1: Yeah. So, you know, like any transplant, you got to have an arterial flow into the um, organ and a venous outlet. And so, um, when you look at the trachea in isolation, uh, it's this tube. And it turns out it's actually biologically a very, Sophisticated tube. It's not just a tube. There are very few things in our body that are just as simplistic as they may look. Even bones. So, so um, you know, this idea that um, when you look at it, and as it's drawn most of the time, it's drawn as this larynx. You know, cricoid, trachea, the the bronchi. You know, the the main stem. You kind of see it in that, but but it doesn't exist that way. Like so many things, it actually exists in a very intimate relationship with the esophagus, and the two of them are plastered together. And when you take a look at the blood supply and you look at the vascularity, just because it's different than the kidney, artery in, vein out, the liver, artery in, vein out, um, you know, it doesn't mean that it's not transplantable. You just have to, you've got to figure out how do you maintain that blood supply. Um, and so what you actually end up doing is you, like so many things, we, we take the complexity and we break it down into simplistic, digestible concepts. So you say, hey, look, I could take a trachea and transplant it if I could take all the skin, all the tissue, everything around it, and put it into a person. Well, do I need the skin? No, let's pare that away. So what's left? Well, you've got arteries and veins and thyroid. Let's pare away some of that muscle. We don't need the muscle. You know, and if you keep pushing and pairing, you get down to the very basics of if you go back and you look at the, the trachea, where does that arcade of blood supply come? Well, it comes from the inferior thyroid artery, superior thyroid artery, traverses through the thyroid gland. So we may need to keep that, traverses through the muscularis of the esophagus, the two are stuck together. Maybe we could keep that. And so you say, are those the bare bones? Is that all we need? And, you know, when we did this, we took the thyroid gland to maintain that blood supply, and we took the muscularis of the esophagus, we took out the mucosa, the inferior thyroid arteries run through it. Um, we may not even need the superior thyroid arteries. You know, it may be that we don't need that. And, and even more interesting to us is that um, we may be able to do tracheoesophageal transplantation for people. We have a communication fistula between those, which is nearly universally fatal. So there's a lot lot of doors that it opens up. And as immunosuppression and transplant science is getting better and better and better, I mean, this is a woman who was 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 you know ready to succumb from her disease. Um, We did it in the middle of COVID because she was really on her last leg, and now she's working. She's with her grandkids. She is swimming. She's doing things that you know, she couldn't have imagined. So, so uh, you know, I, I think, you know, to answer your question, getting there is really about taking the complexity of the problem, breaking it down into digestible, simplistic uh, uh, concepts and kind of working from there. And And believe me, it was not all my idea. These drawings were done by people 100 years before me. The ideas of well, what we did loads of people that worked in the lab with great ideas. So I may be talking to you today, but there's a huge number of people that date way back standing behind me um, that, that provided all these ideas.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like that's the the lesson of science is that you're often standing on the shoulders of, of giants who came before you. So I think that's incredible. And I think just from my perspective, hearing you talk about the anatomy of this area, I mean, I spent the summer tutoring students in anatomy and teaching them about head and neck anatomy. And just to sort of be sitting here today, talking to you about how the inferior thyroid arteries are sort of like the gateway to this surgery being possible. It's just really incredible to see how things that become, that seem so simple as you're learning them and seem so just like absolute and fundamental, are so crucial to this operation. And I just, I almost like see them as like the door to making it possible. And I think it's quite cool to see from my perspective of, um, of where I'm sitting. So I appreciate you going into that detail.
1: Sure. Um,
0: Something else that has, that we've sort of been thinking about in prepping for this interview is, the practice that's required in order to do this. And so I know in previous interviews, you had sort of said, there's not a whole lot you can done, you could do beforehand. You could sometimes practice certain things on cadavers. Um, But I do just wanna hear from your perspective, how you prepared yourself and your team for this operation, um, both in terms of surgical skills and like planning, but also in terms of mental preparation
1: well you know there's surgical skills there's mental preparation but there's also the real blocking and tackling the basics of operationally how do you do this right you go into a room and you have people that are procuring kidney liver right how do you get in there how, you know how do you how do you physically get in there and operationally get the organ that you need to get to so it takes a tremendous amount of coordination you know you, you start like everything we start kind of at the at the base and we do animal experiments and we start with the smallest you're doing them with mice transplants to learn the, the immunobiology of the of the organ um you're moving up to to larger ant rats rabbits to try to get a better feel for mucociliary function and the function of the trachea you're doing injections both into canines you're doing human injections you're using existing data Um, And then when you put it all together, you have a kind of fundamental knowledge base that allows you to say, okay, I think we're ready to do this. And if we're ready to do this, let's walk through what would happen when that phone call comes. And one of the big issues is we need to do this on humans. So you do your cadaveric dissections and you figure out where you're going to stand and where you're going to come from and what are you going to take. And then you go on what are called procurements without intent to transplant. Nothing more fun than two thirty in the morning getting a phone call. You need to drive out to Eastern Long Island, three and a half hours away. They're going to do a organ procurement, and you can go take the trachea if you'd like. The family has graciously consented to allowing us to essentially practice. Go in when they're doing the when they're doing the liver and the and the kidney procurement, we need to get in there. Where can we stand? What instruments do we need? Where are the instruments going to be? How do you, how do you have the nurses, anesthesiologists? Patients intubated, has it damaged the trachea? You know, all of these things. So you practice and it takes 10, 12, 13 you know, times of practice to say, we know where we're going to stand. We're not going to disrupt anybody else. We're not going to get in the way of their you know, procurements. Um, we can do this and time it properly. Um, nurses know, and they're familiar. We know what instruments we need, and so you—you you really do. You—you you start at the very basic, and you work your way up, and you operationalize it. And—and and I would love to tell you that when you walk in for that first transplant, and you go to do it, that it just works like clockwork because you've done it so many times. You have no idea how it's going to go, and it is—it um, is quite an experience. to to say, okay, we've done all this practice, but how's this really gonna work? And luckily on the day that we did it, because of the people in the Transplant Institute here at Mount Sinai, the nurses, the administration, it literally couldn't have gone any better. It was like clockwork and that's pretty rare.
0: Yeah, that's so incredible to hear. And, you know, I hadn't even thought about this before, but when you think about transplant surgeries and you think about the gracious gift of the donor, in this case, there were so many donors that allowed you access to their loved ones, organs to their trachea, knowing that it wasn't actually going to be actually transplanted into the person into the recipient and i just that's think right. that's such a gracious gift for yeah. for that person and for those families
1: it's something you don't always think about but i was shocked at how many people wanted to just help you know they they said you know i'm happy to have you know that the team do this if it's going to help somebody else and remember a lot of these these donors are unfortunately young people that have tragic accidents and you know these families are incredibly gracious, right? I mean, it's, it's really quite amazing. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's pretty incredible to hear about that. Um, You've sort of been alluding to this in talking about the logistics of the surgery. And you had mentioned that because of the gracious gift of those donors, you were able to do some sort of practice, um, at least in terms of removing the trachea. But you actually had two operations going on during the real thing. You had the removal of the trachea from the donor, and then you also had to prepare and actually do the transplantation into the recipient. So it also sounded like from another interview you had done that the donor was transferred to Mount Sinai. So how much time did you have before the notification um, that the donor was there and ready to go to actually starting that very complex operation.
1: Right. So what happened was the recipient, the patient with the long segment tracheal, you know, um, uh, defect had become so sick. Um, and remember, this was a medical professional, somebody who's very knowledgeable. And so she had become so sick that even in the midst of COVID, um, we, we realized if we're going to help her, we're going to do this now. And they they found a donor who was a match from the standpoint of immunology, uh, and and they they we had planned to have the the donor come to Mount Sinai so we could do the operation in two side by side rooms, because as you just said, you're right. There's two operations. One is removing the diseased trachea all the way down to the carina, and the other is then going to procure this. And, um, you know, we started by the procurement, we didn't, you know, to make sure that the graft looked okay, while the other surgeons were taking liver and kidney. When we had the graft into position, but not yet removed, we said, this looks like it's going to be all right to do. When we go in then to the other room, that patient gets put to sleep, and we get to work on that patient. And um, the moment of truth There's two two real sobering moments. One moment is when you cut out the bottom of the trachea from the sick recipient, because once you've made that cut, there is no going back. There is no, um, hey, maybe we can do something else. Let's put in a tracheostomy. Let's put in a stent. There is no other option. So you really are backed against a wall or a cliff, and you have no choice, but to fight forward, the, 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 that cut is a moment of reality that, um, you know, even after so many years of kind of doing surgery, I have not experienced to that degree. Um, the second moment is when you plug this in and you do the microvascular anastomosis arteries and the veins, and you release them to see whether or not this is going to fill with blood. What you can easily forget is that this had not been done before. We did not know if it was going to work and it very easily could have not worked. So, you know, people often say, well, what would you have done? And the answer is, it was not an option for it to not work. I I don't, you know, I don't have any fancy answer. So, so, You're moving very quickly and there are two operations that are going on and it's hard to know which one's the more important one, because uh, once you've kind of stepped through that threshold, you really have no choice but to make sure that the whole thing works well. And it's, uh, you know, it's an interest was an interesting time.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's so incredible to hear. Prior to starting medical school, I was an athlete. And so we did a lot of work on mental preparation. And Building awareness and uh, almost like a capacity to deal with pressure in situations that you haven't actually prepared for. And it sounds like as you were saying that, it just kind of took me back to my days as as an athlete and thinking, like, how do you actually prepare yourself mentally for that moment? Because you're right, it's once you do it, there is no going back. And if something goes wrong, you have to be able to troubleshoot very quickly without losing your cool. So could you maybe just talk about how you prepared yourself mentally for those types of decisions?
1: Sure. It's no different than, you know, what we did when we were athletes, right? Mentally, it's mental imaging. It's walking through how many times you walk through that operation, what happens if the artery clots, if there's no blood flow to the lower trachea, Um, no different than, uh, you know, getting into a rowing match and a regatta and you catch a crab, you know, what do you do? So you mentally image these things in every different way that you possibly can. And um, then you let your instincts take over because ultimately your instincts are a culmination of all these experiences and over years of training that you've tried to prepare yourself. And there is an element of, uh, of letting your instincts take over. And so I think that that's, you know, that's, you know, not a great answer, but it's the truth. The truth is, is that, you know, a lot of mental imagery and a lot of preparation just don't know what's going to happen. You have no idea how it's going to go. So um, it served me well, you know, ultimately. Now, we didn't, thankfully, have any hiccups. Uh, we just didn't. There could have been many, you know, uh, but we didn't. and And we're very lucky in that regard. But got to be prepared when you do have the hiccups, because when we go to do the second and the third, there will be, there will be some stumbling.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you for, for answering that the way that you did. Um, I'd sort of like to end our conversation by discussing the woman who was the recipient of the transplantation. And I know that Mount Sinai has done a lot of publicity on this and has disclosed her name and she even was interviewed. Um, So I think it's okay that I, that I identify her as Sonia. So could you just tell me a little bit more about her as a patient and the preparation that was needed on her part before the surgery happened?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about all the surgery and the preparation and all these other things, but ultimately it's incredible amount of bravery for this individual. Now, you know, she had gotten to a point where she realized. She was going to succumb. She was having routine, you know, life-threatening mucus plugging, uh, a long segment, you know, uh, alloplastic stent that was just not working as they don't. And she knew she had no other option, but she didn't do it because she had no other option. She did it because she wanted to have this fixed. It wasn't enough to be alive. It was really critically important for her to enjoy life. And to be able to to talk to her grandkids, she couldn't speak to them. They had been born; they had never heard her voice. Um, she, you know, couldn't go outside. You know, she was holed up in in her you know apartment because going outside without a suctioning machine was too dangerous. So, you know, she's a medical professional. When she found out about this a number of years early that we were going to run this program, she said, you know, I want to be that person, I, you know, and we have a bunch of people that had, you know, requested to be involved in this. Um, But she was very clear, you know, you need to do this, or, you know, I have no other option. And it's a tremendous amount of bravery, because the conversation we had is, Sonia, I don't know if this is going to work. And it comes on the heels of what some of your listeners may remember Happened at the Karolinska, where the falsified data led to the eventual um, death of a whole group of children and adults with uh, engineered trachea. That was never the data was really never strong enough to support doing this clinically. So all eyes were on this because if this failed, it became another. You know, hotshot surgeon trying to do something fantastic without having the appropriate science and and uh, education behind it. So she knew that there was a tremendous amount of pressure. She knew it had never been done. So so that that's a that's a lot to ask a person. And um, she's got a tremendous amount of charisma. She's a very very brave individual.
0: Yeah, in the interviews, she definitely seemed like an incredible person. So at this point now, she's I think about 19 months post-op. So how is she doing today?
1: She's doing great. She's um, she's gonna. I think she's gonna move down to Virginia. Um, she's got family down there. She's you know she's wanted to go swimming in the ocean for as long as I've ever met her. She that's all she talked about. She can now go do that. Um, you know her voice is is really very very good. Um, she's her her grandkids. You know she's delighted it really is uh, an incredible success story for the individual, right? The reason we do this is not so that we can say we did the first one. That's really not what's in anybody's mind. We do it because you've got a patient whose back against is, is against the wall. They have no other options. And at the end of the day, it's why we practice medicine. We practice medicine to help people, and we do it one patient at a time. But if you can do something that's going to affect many patients potentially down the line it's a great opportunity and um so to see her regain her life and come in to the office and function like any other person hauling you know yelling for cabs and and going to eat and seeing her grant you know that's what it's all about so so it it really was uh, Without question, the most satisfying thing I think I've done in my professional career, just to take a patient like this and give her back her life.
0: Yeah, I mean it's often just those little things that make our lives worth living, and it sounds like in her case, she she got those things back, which I think is incredibly uh, powerful for us to hear about. What lessons do you think the surgery will provide to future patients living with chronic tracheal damage and their physicians and medical teams?
1: Yeah, I'd see the only reason we actually, I allowed for the amount of marketing and kind of publicity to occur is really because there's so many patients out there that, you know, don't know about this, right? So it becomes an issue of not doing a dog and pony show, but really educating people and saying, hey, look, if you have a loved one, they're in an ICU, this is their problem. You know, there's opportunity, there's options. And um, so I think it speaks to A, you know, this is an option for this particular disease. And B, if you're a patient, there are new things occurring all the time. And C, if you're a medical student, these you know contributions that you can make. This is not so far fetched. This is not you know some fairy tale. Um, it's 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 an opportunity to say you know what can I do? What problems exist out there where there is no solution? Let me go see if I can find one. That's exciting.
0: Absolutely. So um, I think I would just like to end with one last question for you, if that's OK. Um, sure. And that would just be if you have any advice to the medical students who are listening to this podcast today.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that the biggest lesson in all this is really about the medical students. It's really about the idea that you're going to hear over and over again, you know, that can't be done. You know, that that's not the way it's done. You know, part of being a medical student, what's so wonderful is that your, your, your mind is not littered with these preconceptions. And, um, you know, you have to love, you have to really have a passion for, for the question. So it's not like you say, hey, I've got a question. Let me go see what I can do. You, you really have to have a passion for the, the question. But when you find that question and you have that passion, go and push forward. It is it, the today's science and, and the ability to answer questions. Um, we have more resources to get us to that answer than we've ever had before. When you think and you read back to the, the literature, whether it's Aerosmith or so many other, you know, really interesting, you, you realize, you know, we can get answers now and we can do things we could never do, you know, or it would take us months to do. So I think it's, to me, it's a real, um, I think it it should be or I would hope it would be a story that creates enthusiasm for medical students, a story that's inspirational for medical students, you know, to, to, to find these questions and go, go after them.
0: Yeah, I think that's an incredible perspective. Um. So with that, I just want to say um, thank you so much for for joining me on the podcast and for the advice that you gave to the medical students. But I also just want to say thank you for demonstrating to us like a great example of following your your curiosity and the impact that that passion can have on patients in the future. I just it's incredibly inspiring from my perspective. And I think for all of the medical students who listen to this podcast, they will feel the same way. So thank you.
1: (laughs) My pleasure, and I hope it does inspire you because that's what it's all about.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode. We heard from Dr. Eric Jenden about his experience leading the first medical team to successfully perform a human tracheal transplant surgery. We also discussed the collaborative research efforts it took to make the surgery possible, the incredible sacrifices made by the many donors and their families, and the trust Sonia, the first recipient, put into her medical team. Be sure to follow Sundays with Saima on Instagram and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest guests. Catch us next time on Sundays with Saima and Co.